You are listening to audio from Community Bible Church. If you would like to find out more information about us, please visit us at cbcsavannah.com. It's good to be back up here with you after a couple weeks off. I'm grateful for Clint and Talavo and Coleman. It's just awesome that we are a privileged uh, church to have so many folks that can stand up here and, and communicate God's word to you. And so I am grateful for that that time to be off a little bit, but also for those guys to get opportunities to share with you. Have you ever been in a place that you just don't fit, where you stand out, where you're an outlier, where you don't belong? Um, I, when my first and really only time so far to Africa several years ago, I was with John Sister, one of our uh, missionaries and a buddy from seminary. We were in Tanzania. And uh, we were on a, like a 12-hour bus ride, an African bus ride. And it was a very exciting uh, ride. But uh, halfway through, they made a stop. You know, you can go to the restroom and you can get food. And it was in this little, I guess, village. It's the best uh, word I can use. And it was like a, a mosque and uh, like some kind of a restaurant that none of you would go to ever in a million years where they offered you like a fish on a plate, like the entire fish. Uh, and there were, it was very clear who the three Americans were, all right? Okay, we were in a foreign land, uh, and I can tell you that I've never been more nervous in a foreign country than I was in that moment because here, here's the, you know, the, the mosque over here and the call of worship over here, and I stood out. And it's not like I'm like, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger, like, yeah, bring it on. This is Terminator. It's like, this is little Bill Fowler. And John Shittister, who, you know, he's a Marine, but I mean, John's like, it was in his 60s at the time, so he ain't gonna go all, he go all. And my buddy Josh, he was a seminary guy, so he, he ain't a threat to nobody, right? You know, he's academic. So here's these three Americans in this foreign land, and we stand out, and we don't fit, right? And it's evident. Or maybe it's, maybe you haven't gone overseas or another country, but maybe you uh, have gone, uh, you know, you visited a, a, a a home stadium of another team. You're the visiting team. You're visiting and you're rooting for your team. I've been to Texas Stadium a couple times with my buddy Ron, who's a big Cowboys fan. You can pray for him um, because they think they're America's team, but they're really not because America didn't start in Dallas. It started where? In Philadelphia. It started in Philadelphia. But anyway, so we go and you get the usual stuff there. You get the comments and you get the, the hatred and the jealousy because they haven't been relevant since the 90s, since Nirvana was around. I mean, so you get the angst and the hostility and you don't fit. So maybe you've been in that situation. Or maybe you've just been, you know, at a store with your spouse that you just don't belong in, like the Hobby Lobby. And there's nothing, everyone's walking around like enamored with everything. Oh, look at that, we need that. And there is nothing in the world in that store that is even remotely attractive to you. The value system seems to be different. And so there's unwritten rules were in your places like that. Rule number one, you just find one of the chairs and you sit in it. That's what you do. And then rule number two, you make no comments. No comments like, are we almost done? Or do we really need that thing? Do we, you just, there's just rules when you're in a place that you don't belong, right? There's understanding for the Christian, for the follower of Jesus, this world, this planet we live on, the entirety of it is Hobby Lobby. There's, there's a value system that it just, it's not the same. Or it's Texas Stadium where there's hostility and the enemy is amidst. Or it's a foreign country where there's different culture and different values and different understandings. This entire 
world for the Christian is the enemy territory. We are foreigners. And so the question we're going to deep dive into these next couple months is how does the follower of Jesus live, navigate in that world, living as a foreigner, living as a, as Peter's going to say, an exile, someone who doesn't fit with all the hostility and the challenges and how not just we live, how do we thrive in that situation? That is what we're going to look at as we study together the book of First Peter. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there. If you don't have a Bible, let me just encourage you, buy one, get one, download the app, bring it with you. Don't rely on the slides. You'll get more out of the sermon if, you, if you're following along in something. Uh, and if you need help finding a Bible, we'll, we'll get you one. All right, well, well, we'd love for you to bring uh, that. Our name is Community Bible Church, right? So it's kind of important that we, we study the scripture. Um, if you don't know where First Peter is, flip to the back of your Bible and slowly turn to your left and you'll find it. So it's a little, little five chapter letter. I encourage you last week for those here to read through it a couple times this week. Anybody read through First Peter this week? A couple of you? Awesome. Your homework every week. Read through the book of First Peter one time, at least. Just read through it. Because right, you'll start to see how the pieces fit together. If you're new to, to CBC, you're one of our guests today. What we typically do is we study through one of the 66 books of the Bible. And we do that because we believe that, yes, we can know truth because we're made in the Imago Dei and because we live in a world. But we need specific truth. We need someone from outside, something that transcends to speak. And we believe that God has done that in the 66 books of the Scripture. And so what we do is we study through books of the Bible from the beginning to the end. So that way we can understand the context. We can understand what's going on. It keeps us from skipping the hard stuff that sometimes we don't want to talk about. It also makes us biblically literate. Our goal for you is that you know the scripture, that you know what God has said. You know what he says about you. He know what he says about us. And so you only get that when you yourselves are grasping what the scripture is about. And so that's why we study books in its entirety, in its original context, because it's important to remember that we're going to look at what is called an epistle, the scripture is made up of all sorts of genres. You got poetry, you got prophecy, you got biblical narrative. We looked at that last time. You got epistles or letters. This book that we're going to look at is it a letter? It's a real letter from a real guy to a real group of people that are just like you. They have families, they have dreams, they have jobs, they have careers, they have kids, they get sick, they go to funerals, they go to weddings, they have money issues, they got all sorts of struggles, just like us. And just like us, Peter is going to say, you are exiles. You don't fit. And here's the point. That's good. You shouldn't. And if you're trying to, you're going to have all sorts of other issues because you're not meant to fit. So what do we do? How do we live? Peter has some directions. So here's what we're going to do today. Real simple. Like we do every time we crack open a book, we're going to talk about the background. Who wrote it? Why they write it? Who they write it to? That way we, get, we can see the pieces as they fit together. Because again, it's a real letter. It's got a real point. Not just ramblings of Peter right, one night, right? So we're going to look at that. And then we're going to jump in real quick. to the. We're just going to look at the first few verses. And we're going to see two reminders that Peter's going to give just in this introduction that, that are going to empower us to show us how we can successfully live as exiles. Because that's what the book's going to be about. And these are going to be critical for our understanding of where we're going. They're going to come back to them. We're going to see them throughout the book, but we need to grasp these two truths that he's going to give us right in the beginning, all right? So let me read the first two verses. That's our introduction. That's kind of going to give us all the background information we need, and we'll, we'll kind of talk about it. First Peter 1, verses 1 and 2. Peter, 
an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. So start with who wrote the book? Who wrote the book? Real simple question, right? Peter, you guys are brilliant. You're expert Bible scholars, right? Uh, I say that, it's ironic that that no one doubted Peter's authorship until about the 19th century and then they're like, oh, Peter didn't really write it because the Greek's too good and all these other things, which was really an insult because it's saying blue collar guys can't be smart. Um, So that's what they're in essence saying because the Greek is very good, it's very clear, it's very uh, articulate, um, but it it doesn't doesn't misunderstand the fact that Peter grew up in a culture where speaking Greek was important. He's a fisherman which is uh, a trade language of the day was Koine Greek. His brother's name is Andrew, we're gonna see, and that's a Greek name. So he has great Greek influences in his life. But Peter writes the book. Now, Peter, for those of you who are new to the Bible, let me just kind of unpack who this guy is. He actually wasn't born Peter. He was born uh, under a different name. His parents named him a good Hebrew name, Shimeon, or we kind of make it in English, Simon. That's his, that's his given name, one of the 12 tribes of Israel, right? Simon. And he was a fisherman like his dad. And that day you would do what your dad did. So if your dad's a fisherman, you learn the trade of being a fisherman. And so that's what his future was. He's married. We don't know much about his wife. We just know he has a mother-in-law. So he's married and he's busy doing his fisherman life. And one day his brother, Andrew, is listening to a sermon, a, a preacher named John. John's preaching and, and, and speaking. And all of a sudden, Jesus walks by. And John the Baptist says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Andrew stops following John and he goes after Jesus and Jesus is kind of standing there and Andrew walks up to him and Jesus is like, yes, can I help you? And Andrew says, Rabbi, where are you staying today? He says, come and see. So Andrew goes with Jesus, they go back to a house, they have a meal, they hang out all afternoon. Andrew goes home that night to his brother Simeon Simon, and says, we have found the Messiah. So the next day, Andrew says, let me take it to him. So Andrew brings Simon to Jesus. Jesus sees him. He looks at him and says, you are Simon, son of John. You shall be called Cephas. Jesus gives him a nickname. Cephas is Aramaic for rock, which is translated in Greek, Petros. So we call him Peter. But Jesus sees this guy who's raw, And he sees what he's going to make him. He sees what he's going to become after three and a half years of being discipled and hanging out with Jesus. He said, you're gonna be a rock. You're gonna be a rock head too, but you're gonna be a rock. And what we see as the gospels unfold is that Peter becomes the leader of the 12 disciples. And all four lists of the, uh, the gospels of the disciples, Peter is the first one mentioned. After the disciples run away, Uh, Jesus tells Peter, I want you, after you come back, I want you, Peter, you're gonna be the one who strengthens your brothers because he's a leader. The angels, when they see the women at the tomb on that resurrection Sunday, they say, tell the disciples and tell Peter that he will go ahead of you. He's a key leader. He has unique access to Jesus. He's not just one of the 12. He's in the inner circle. There's there's three disciples who have uh, unique access to Jesus, even among the 12. James, his brother John, and Peter. 
And these three guys get access that the others don't always get. They're the ones who Jesus brings up on the mountain of transfiguration where they see his glory. They're the ones in the garden of Gethsemane where Jesus has the nine over here and he brings the 12, these three with him uh, to pray alongside. They have special access. It's a, there's a uniqueness to his relationship with the Lord Jesus, right? He's in that inner circle. Um, he is the one who speaks first, sometimes well, sometimes not. He's quick to act, quick to speak. So when Jesus is walking on the water and all the disciples are freaking out and he says, it's me. Peter says, all right, I'm coming, Lord. And he's the only one to get out of the boat. And we always hammer him because he doesn't believe, but he's the only one that got out of the boat. There's old Matthew over there sitting there comfortable under his blanket. Peter jumps. Peter's the one who pulls out his knife when the soldiers try to take Jesus. He's the only one that's carrying a firearm and he's the only one that's ready to use it, right? Cuts off a guy's ear, right? He's the first to act. He's the one when Jesus says, I'm going to the cross. He said, no, 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 no. He takes him aside and he rebukes him. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. So he's quick to act, right? He's quick to speak always, which I think is why we like him because we relate to him. He's kind of a, a man's man, the common man, drives an F-150, uh, just wants to hang out, uh, and he messes up a lot. But on his best day, he's leading the apostles. He's preaching to thousands in Jerusalem. He's writing books of the Bible. He's walking on water, right? He ends his life being crucified because of his faith in Jesus. And he says at the end, church history says, they're gonna crucify him and he asked to be crucified upside down because he didn't, he didn't think he was worthy to be crucified and murdered like Jesus. That's his best day. On his worst day, he rebukes Jesus. He denies Jesus to a little girl and he becomes a racist in the book of Galatians, which Paul calls him out. So he's not perfect, which is why we love him because we're all like, that's my guy. He's not perfect. He's just a good guy. That is Peter. And it's important you understand that, that he's the author because no one knows the Lord Jesus like Peter. Peter and John. Those guys know him better than anybody. And we looked at John's epistle last year, so now we're looking at Peter's. If you wanna know anything about the Lord Jesus in 60, 61, 62 AD, they're your guys. They're the resident scholars. They are experts. They know him as good as anyone ever has. So he speaks, when he speaks in this letter, he speaks from expertise, but he also speaks authoritatively. Notice again, it says, Peter, an apostle. Now everybody these days, especially on TV, is calling himself an apostle. Right? I'm apostle this, apostle that, send me money, I'm an apostle. Right? And in a generic sense, we're all apostles because the word apostle just means messenger. But in the early church, there was a specific group of men that were given specific authority from Jesus himself and they were called apostles. You had three offices in the early church. You had elder slash bishop, you had deacon slash minister. Okay? Every church had those. And then you had a group of men 12 appointed by Jesus, Judas leaves, and so they replace him with a guy named Matthias. And then you add a couple later, Barnabas and Paul. And these men had a unique authority that was foundational for the early church. They, they, they were the ones spreading the gospel. They were leading multiple churches and, and encouraging and raising up elders. And it was a foundational office that was only in the early church. It doesn't exist today because you had to see, number one, you had to see the risen Christ to be an apostle. That's kind of hard 2,000 years later. Number two, you had to perform miracles and signs, according to 2 Corinthians, that validated your apostleship. You couldn't just say, I'm an apostle. You had to actually prove your apostleship by doing legitimate miracles, like raising people from the dead or making blind people see or healing people. Those two qualifications. So we don't see them today, but there was an authority that, that they had that existed in the early church that was critical 
to the foundation of the church and to the writing of the New Testament. And Peter in this letter is doing exactly what Jesus told him when he commissions him. Remember, he denied Jesus three times, so Jesus asked him three times, do you love me, do you love me, do you love me? He says, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, Lord. He said, feed my sheep. Tend my little lambs. And this book is Peter tending his little lambs. So Peter is your author, and he is writing, he says, to those who are, and this is a loaded phrase, elect exiles of the dispersion. All right, so we'll come back to the elect piece because I know that's a cuss word for some of y'all. You're like, oh, Peter cuss. So we'll come back to that. But he calls them exiles of the dispersion. The word exiles just means uh, aliens or strangers or refugees or pilgrims or sojourners. It specifically refers to someone who is living someplace, but that's not where they're from. That's not their home. Right? They don't ulti- that's not ultimately where they are going to be. Right? That is an exile. Okay? And these exiles are of the dispersion. And that, again, is another term that's used physically of, of in the Old Testament when the Jews were dispersed because of uh, Babylon and Greece and all these things. But it's also used metaphorically, which is how he uses it here. Those, those people who are dispersed, who are just scattered in areas like Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia. And that's this area. Here's a map of where he's writing to. And it's a large area, right? It's all of really modern day Turkey. That's who he's writing to. Who are now scattered in this area and they are now exiles. They might be from that town. They might be from Pontus. They might be from Cappadocia. But because now of their faith in Jesus, because they are following Jesus, they are now exiles in their homeland. Because once you put your faith in Christ, once you become a follower of Jesus, everything changes. Everything changes. Your family identity changes. You were a child of Satan? right? There's only two teams, God's team, Satan's team. You are a child of Satan, or now you are a child of God. You are a citizen of this world, now you are a citizen of heaven. And so everything changes. They are exiles scattered throughout the land, and now because they are following Jesus, and they've switched teams, they're facing some persecution, some trials, there's struggles. Life has not been easy since following Jesus, it's actually gotten harder. And there's physical reasons and there's spiritual reasons. The spiritual reason is this. When you were an enemy of God, you weren't a threat to, the, to Satan and his kingdom. Now, you are a child of God. And so God has been in this cosmic battle with Satan since Genesis chapter three, and now you've switched teams and now you are in the enemy's crosshairs. And so later on in the book, he's gonna say, hey, your enemy not just my enemy, your enemy, the devil is prowling around like a roaring lion. He's seeking to devour you. And so they are facing, they've entered into this spiritual battle and they are facing persecution and struggles and stuff at work and stuff at home and stuff in relationships because at work in those days, you often work for a a trade guild, which is like a modern day union. And these trade guilds would have gods and they'd have festivals, which they worship pagan gods. And you can no longer do that because I worship Jesus. So if you can't do that, then you can't work here. So how do you provide for your family? How do you you survive? How do you eat? Or maybe you're a spouse who becomes a Christian and your other spouse does not and they're still worshiping at the temple of Artemis but you can't do that anymore and now there's tension in the home. How do you deal with that? Or you're a kid. You're supposed to take over the family business. 
Now you're a follower of Jesus. Dad's not gonna give you the family business. What do you do? And so there's all sorts of tension in their lives because they are exiles. And Peter's gonna say, it's okay. That's normal. And he's writing this letter to encourage all these people, all these churches. I mean, you're talking about all the huge area to not, don't quit. Don't give up. Don't deny the faith. Don't deconstruct the faith. Don't, oh, it's so hard. I can't find a, a Christian spouse. I can't find a this. I can't. Do not give up. It's ironic that the one who, who denied Jesus and who gave up is now saying, hey, don't do what I did. Don't quit. Don't quit. Don't, don't become a, a secret agent Christian, a 007 Christian. I'll just kind of sneak in and go under the radar. I just won't tell anybody who I am. That's, that's not the option. Nor is it to become antagonistic and just mad at everybody and slamming the government and slamming your boss and slamming your spouse and Facebook and this and becoming the Christian stereotype that wins all the arguments but loses the battle and loses the war. Peter is gonna say none of those are the option. There is a way to live honorable amongst the Gentiles that, that gives glory to God and that you can be successful as an exile and that is where we're gonna go. And, and look, the more our culture is spiraling out of control and away from the things of God and running headlong into sin and everything that God says is, is wrong, the more and more this book is gonna be relevant to us as a church. I'm just telling you that the more and more you follow Jesus, the more and more you're going to feel like an exile, right? That, that's just the way. And so this is a book that I think I don't know where the church is gonna be in America in the next 10 years. I don't know what's coming, but I can tell you it's, it's not looking favorable towards people who uh, call Jesus Lord. Not if they really call him Lord and wanna follow what he says. So we need to be ready for whatever's coming because being in exile is normal. And in this country for the last 200 or so years, it's been pretty easy to be a follower of Jesus. I mean, the worst case scenario is, oh, you lose a friend, oh well. But it may come a time. That's not been church history. That's not been the way it has been. I mean, the church started in the fire, right? And first couple hundred years were tough. So if that's where we go, we needed to learn how to function as exiles, all right? So that's, that's who's writing. That's what's going on. Peter, about 30 years after the resurrection, is writing to a group of Christians. Some of them he probably knows. Some of them he probably doesn't know. He didn't start all these churches. Paul probably started most of these churches. But he's writing to encourage them. Hey, don't quit. Don't give in. You keep following Christ. You be exiles. It's gonna be all right. And then what he does in these two verses, he gives two things he wants us to remember. Two reminders that are gonna be critical for us if we're gonna be successful ex exiles, right? And these are gonna be essential to move on. This is not a list of rules of, you know, how to be a nice person and blah, blah, blah. No, if you don't grasp these and everything else doesn't mean anything. So these are the starting place for the exile. It's the prereqs to be in an exile and to be successful. And the first one we already saw, we've read it. Uh, it's just this, very simple. It's you are to remember who you are. Remember exile who you are. He gave this little adjective that modifies the noun exiles right up front. Again, some of you, it makes you bristle. Some of you, you already got your copy of John Piper out and you're all excited. He says, we are elect exiles. Elect, electos in the Greek, chosen. Now I know some of you are about to flip out, right? Because, you know, this has been a divisive 
topic of division in the church, the idea of the doctrine of election and all, oh, nobody does this and we want to fight and, and every 21-year-old who gets excited about election makes all his parents mad because he becomes an expert on soteriology. But here's the thing. For Peter, the doctrine of election, the concept of, of being chosen is not something to fight about. It's not something to be arrogant about. It is something that is meant to encourage and stir us up, to give us some steel in our spine. It's to, to make us, just to drive us on because the, the concept of being chosen is, is good. Who does not like to be picked? Who does not like to be chosen, except for jury duty? Who does not like to be chosen? Some of you actually like jury duty. It's like, I don't have to go to work and I get $11. So I can buy a sandwich. Oh, good. Everyone likes to be picked. I mean, you remember back in elementary school, some of you, it's cold, you know, get cold sweats, but you, you braved the recess and you went out there and there's the two most popular kids, right? And they're picking teams for kickball. And what was your hope and your prayer? You're promising God, Lord, just please help me not to go last. I don't care if I'm picked in the middle. I don't even care if I'm picked second. Just don't let me be the last one picked. Especially when there's an odd number, right? When there's an odd number and there's like, oh, okay, you got Jimbo. No, we don't, we don't need Jimbo. We, we're good. You know, Jimbo can go to your team, right? We don't want to be Jimbo. Now, Jimbo's a surgeon now and he's getting everyone else back. But back then, Jimbo was the reject. You want to be picked. Being, being picked feels good. Being wanted and chosen. And, and that, the doctrine of election is meant to be an encouragement to the people of God, not something we flip out about, not something we debate. Because at its core, it's this, that God, in eternity past, before the foundation of the world, a million years before, a million years before Genesis 1 even happened, he chose you. He knew your name. He loved you. Before you even existed, before the world existed. He loved you. That, that's at its core what the doctrine of election is. That's why there's no reason for arrogance because it has nothing to do with you. It's not because, yeah, he's, he's going to be great. He's going to be something else. He's gonna, I think he might be something one day. It's just the same thing God did with Israel. God chooses Israel to be his nation. Why? It's not, we read the book of Exodus. It's not because it's like, wow, these people got some potential. Uh, no, we saw these people. There's nothing about them that's like, yeah, they're, they're, they're rock stars. He chooses Abraham. Abraham was just a faithful guy. No, Abraham was an idolater living in Haran. He was not seeking God. And God favors him and chooses him to be the father of many nations and ultimately the Messiah. Why? Not because of Abraham, not because of Israel, because of God. This is why this is supposed to give us a big view of God and a small view of man. We don't sing how great we are, how great we are. no. Right, because it's, salvation is from beginning to end a work of God. And the point of, of having a, a good concept of, of this idea is that it's not about me. There's no reason for arrogance. There's no reason for fighting. It's just supposed to blow our socks off because God wanted me. God chose me. And if you're like, of course he chose me, then you don't get it. Because there ain't nothing about you that's special except for him. That's the point. And that's why it should humble us and we respond in worship. 
He's like, well, I would have, I would have chosen God. I would have found God. I would have. No, you wouldn't have. Because Paul says, there's none who seeks God. Not even one. You're not even one. If God doesn't move first, if God doesn't act, if God doesn't know you, if God doesn't, before the foundation of the world, write your name in the Lamb's Book of Life. I know you all went to youth camp or promise keepers and, you know, people walk down front and, another name is added to the Lamb's Book of Life. No, it wasn't. Gabriel's not up there taking names. How do you spell that name? Is that John with a J? Yeah, Gabriel, there's only one way to spell John, right? No. No, your name was written before the foundation of the world. That's what Revelation teaches. I love the Spurgeon quote. We used it many times, but it, it, I just think it's appropriate. He says, I believe the doctrine of election because I'm quite certain that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen him. I'm sure that he chose me before I was born or else he would never have chosen me afterwards. And he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me for I never could find any reason in myself why he should have looked upon me with special love. Yes. Yes. And other, do, you have, do you have questions about that? I do. I got, I got tons of them, right? I don't have all the answers. And if you have questions, awesome. Email Tyler Abbott, our youth pastor, <laughs> at CBC, T. Abbott. He's not in here right now, so. Look, I got questions. But here's what I know, okay? I know that my finite little mind, P-trained, 2.7 GPA is never gonna grasp some of the greatest things of God. I just never will. But here's what I know. The scripture teaches that God is sovereign over election. He also, it also teaches that you are responsible to believe and respond to the gospel. Well, how do those two things work together? I have no idea. And I'm all right with that. And if you're not, then you're gonna wrestle with some things. But I have, I have a lot of questions. I don't, I don't know how there can be one true God, and yet there's three distinct persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Each person is fully God, yet there is one God. I don't know how that works either, but the scripture teaches it. So I believe it, all right? And that's the reality of some things. I don't understand how God doesn't have a beginning. Have you tried to think about that? A billion, zillion, quadro, whatever engineer number years ago, God had already existed for eternity. Can you get your arms around that? I sure can't. So I'm okay with saying, okay, here's what scripture teaches. This is why a view of inspiration of scripture that God has spoken through his word is important. God has said it. I trust, I know what he says. And here's what I do know. I know God is good. Anything he does is good. I know that God is just. So anything he does is just. And I know that God is holy. Anything he does is holy. So I may not grasp everything, but I do know that he is good, just, and holy, so I can trust him. But don't miss the, the, the tree in the midst of the theological forest. Why would he bring this up at the introduction of this letter, that you are his chosen, that you are his elect? Here's why. Because when life stinks, or you're facing opposition, or it's just not going the way you think it should go, it is real easy to slip into, well, God doesn't really care. I mean, if God knew what was going on, if God knew the struggles I had, if God knew that I'm doing what I'm supposed to and my boss is not doing this, if God knew that I'm trying to be a faithful spouse and my spouse is not, if God knew and what he's reminding you is, oh, God knows. You are, you're more known than you can fathom. You were known a billion years ago. You think your depression was not known? You think that addiction God didn't know? He knew you before you existed. And he's encouraging them with, no, you are his elect. Even when it's not easy, you are his chosen. And the father, Jesus says, who is greater than I, 
He, he has you in his hand. Who can snatch you from the Father's hand? If God is for you, who can be against you? He's reminding them, you are his special chosen elect. He moved first. He drew you to himself. He has put his name on your forehead. You are his. You are his sheep. That's what he's reminding them of. And he did it according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. This speaks of God's sovereignty. He is sovereign. Some people say, well, this just means that God looks down the quarters of time and he sees who's gonna respond to the gospel and so he chooses them before. Then who's the chooser then? If, if God's just looking to see who chooses him first, then he's just a divine fortune teller. No, this word speaks more of just knowing what's gonna happen. Of course he does. There's a determination factor. That's, what, that's the way Peter uses this in Acts 2. He said that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God the Father. It's not just that God knew that Jesus was gonna be crucified. No, God determined that Jesus was gonna be crucified. That was decided in eternity past. So foreknowledge is not just, oh, God knows what's gonna happen. No, no, God is sovereign. So if he's sovereign over choosing you, that means he's sovereign over all this junk that you're looking at in your life. And you're like, I wish God would take this away. God's saying, this is there on purpose. There's a reason that this is is going on. You may not like it, but in the end, know this. You're chosen. You're safe. And, and being in exile and, 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 and being able to survive and thrive, you gotta remember who you are, that you are chosen by God, that, that you are known by God, and he sanctifies you. Look at what he says next. He says that you are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit. It is the Spirit, the, the third person of the Trinity, who sets you apart. He's the one who, and we looked at this, this word sanctification just means made holy. We looked at this in Exodus ad nauseum. Things were made holy. Things were made holy. They were set apart. Israel's set apart. Moses is set apart. The priest is set apart. The spirit, God chooses you, so the spirit sets you apart. He takes you from team Satan. He puts you on team God. He puts you in a, di- a completely different station. You were citizens of earth. Now you are citizens of heaven. That's all the work of the spirit. He's the one who convicted you, showed you your need for God, enabled you to believe in God. He sealed you. He fills you. He empowers you. He walks with you. He leads you. He is how you live life as an exile. There is no life as an exile apart from the spirit of God. It's just a bunch of rules. You need the spirit of God to move in such a way that you can live as an exile. He says, this is what God has done. Who are you? You are a child of God, chosen by him, filled by his spirit, right? And Peter knows this more than anybody. I mean, Peter, the night before Jesus is crucified, denies Jesus to a little girl. I don't know who Jesus is. I don't know who Jesus is. A month later, he's standing in front of thousands. The very people that crucified Jesus said, you did this. What happened? Spirit. Spirit of God comes on him. He's a different person. Right? He's, been tra- he's been made a new creation. And for us, if we're gonna live as exiles, you gotta keep coming back to, who am I? Who am I? I am loved by God. I am known by God. I am filled, sealed by God. And nothing can separate me from the love of God in Christ. And so when there's a pull to quit, to give in, to deconstruct your faith, when a professor is slamming you, when, when everyone is, is saying all these things about you, you remember who you are. You're like, it's not fair. They get to do this and I get to do this. And why is this and that? You remember who you are. When you're rejected, when you're passed over for a promotion, when people don't like you, when they say things about you, you remember who you are. That, that kind of hope we're gonna see is gonna drive the life of the exile. 
That's the first thing. Real quick, the second thing. Remember who you are, and then secondly, remember your assignment. It's a very simple assignment. Not easy, but it's very simple. What does he say? That you are elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, sanctified, set apart by the Spirit. Here's why. See that little word for? It's a critical little preposition, little Greek word, ace. It indicates the purpose. Why did God choose you? Why are you in exile? Why did he set you apart? To obey Jesus. For the obedience of Jesus Christ. Notice, by the way, all three members of the Trinity here. Father, Son, and Spirit. Father chooses, Spirit sets apart. You follow Jesus. The, the task, the assignment of the exile is not easy, but it is very simple. Obey Jesus. He did not cleanse you with his blood. He didn't sprinkle you with his blood. And that's the idea. We saw that in Exodus 2, right? The sprinkling was the idea of cleansing. He did not forgive your sin. He did not pay the penalty of your sin so that you could get out a hell free card and just go live your life and do whatever I want. I'm forgiven. I can do whatever I want. Yeah, you are forgiven, but not so that you can do what you want. Now so that you can follow him. So that you can do what he wants. If any man wants to come after me, he must first deny himself. Second, take up his cross daily. And third, follow me. And that's important because you hear a lot this day, these days, especially in the church. Well, if God didn't want me to do that, then he would take that desire away. Well, God made me like this and this is the way I am and blah, 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 blah. No, Jesus says, no, you deny who you think you are and you follow me. I don't care if you have a propensity to X, Y, or Z. That's called sin. I say, you follow me. And we all have to deny ourselves. That's following him. We are called to obey and follow. He's gonna say all sorts of things. Abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage wars against your soul. Put aside malice and envy and slander and all these things and hypocrisy. Love one another, be tenderhearted, forgive, cast anxiety on me. He's going to tell us what this looks like. But we are called. You're not called just to come sing a couple songs, give a little check and walk out. You are called to obey Jesus Christ. That's what you're called to do. And the more and more you do it, let me just say, let me me dispense this myth right now because it's in the church and it's running rampant. You think if I obey Jesus, then things will be easy. Au contraire, mon frere. Really? Oh, if I obey Jesus, he'll bless me. Sometimes. And eternity. Sometimes when you obey Jesus, it makes you more and more and more like an exile. You're a single person in this church and you're trying to walk in purity and in a dating relationship, walk in purity, it may cost you a relationship. You may feel more and more. The more and more you try to be pure in this culture, you will feel like an exile, I can promise you. You, you wanna be the guy at work that even when the boss is not there, even when, when so-and-so is gone, that, that I do my job and I'm excellent, when everyone else is slacking off, you will feel like an exile. You wanna not cheat in these schools today and you take an honest C instead of a, a, a cheated, a stolen A, you will be an exile. You forgive someone that did something, they they harmed your business, they slandered your name, and you don't get back at them, you will feel like an exile. You hold, here's a biggie, you hold a biblical view of marriage and gender and sexuality in this world, son, you are an exile, right? 
You pursue holiness of any way. Respect your parents. Call your mom and tell her where you're at. What are you thinking? You're gonna be in exile. But that's okay. That's, that's what we are called to do. It's a short time, right? It is time, he's gonna later say, it's time for judgment to become with the household of God. It begins with us. This is our time to be scrutinized. This is our time to, to get heat. This is our time to struggle. And this is as bad as it's ever gonna get, this world. Not necessarily what's going on today, but this is as bad in this time, and you're 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 years, that's as bad as it's gonna get. It's, it's, it's time. But eternity's coming, right? And that's his point. Do you follow me? That's your assignment. And don't compare and don't be like, well, what about them? Like, How come they get to do that? And I get this and they get this and that. Peter actually learns that the hard way. Because when he is restored to ministry, Jesus says, one day they're gonna take you where you don't wanna go and they're gonna do to you what you don't want them to do, talking about his death. And he looks over at John and is like, well, what about John? What's gonna happen to John? And Jesus says, you let me handle John. You follow me, right? And he does. And it takes him to the cross, his own cross. So how do we begin as exiles? We remember who we are. Chosen, blood-bought, children of the living God. Secure, sealed, filled, empowered by the spirit of the living God. And we remember our one task, to obey Jesus Christ. And what we do, what does he close? Grace and peace be multiplied to you. It'll be multiplied to you. You'll have grace, maybe just enough for today, but you'll have grace. You'll have your daily bread, not your weekly bread, not your monthly bread, but you might only get your daily bread, but that's okay. That's all you need, right? That is how we survive as exiles. Remember who you are. Remember your job. Remember your task. And that's what we're gonna see as we work through this little boat. I'm gonna pray. If you have questions about Jesus, if God has brought you here, you're a guest, and you're like, I don't get all this stuff, that's okay. The fact that you are here shows that God is drawing, that God is moving. And the scripture says, if the Holy Spirit is drawing and speaking, don't harden your heart, respond. We'd love to as pastors or staff or anybody talk to you about that. You can understand how you can have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, what he has done for you, uh, how he has given his life for you. Maybe you're here and you have been 007 Christian. You've been living under the radar. It's time for you to stop. I'm not saying be obnoxious or weird or go and say, I'm a, you know, wear I love Billy Graham t-shirt to work or something. But it's time for you to, to be salt and light. Maybe you've been compromising and you just thought, oh, it doesn't really matter how I live my life. I'm living with my girlfriend. I'm throwing up on River Street at 2 a.m. with everyone else on Friday nights. And you're just, there's no distinction between you and the world. It's time to stop. It's time for you to follow Jesus Christ. He sprinkled with his blood. He cleansed you from your sin. It's time to, time to live your life for him. It's time to be in exile. And is that hard? Yeah, it's, it's challenging. Because you know what? We like to be liked. We like to be chosen. We like to be picked. But get to remember, we want to be picked by the ones that matter. God's the one who chooses. He's the one that matters. His team is the one that wins. Right? And so it's, yeah, sometimes you're gonna be in the crosshairs. Sometimes you're not gonna be liked. Sometimes what you say or what you do is not gonna be popular, but that's the life of an exile. That's the life of Jesus. I mean, if you follow Jesus, they're not gonna like you. So I know if I'm loving like Jesus, they'll, they'll love me. Jesus was the most loving, truthful, kind person who ever lived and they murdered him. 
He says, if they did it to me, they're gonna do it to you, right? So we pray for strength, we pray for perseverance, we pray for truth. Why don't you stand and we'll uh, pray and then we'll respond in worship. Father, I pray that take your word, use it for your glory to shape your people. Help us to live as exiles, to thrive as exiles, to see what that looks like for us in the next coming weeks. Use this little letter from this man who we so relate to, to strengthen us, to encourage us, to challenge us, to not find our home here, but to find it with you. Uh, Help us to live as elect exiles, reminded that you are good and that you chose us. It's in Christ's name I pray.